Welcome to Hacking Your ADHD, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, William Kerb, and I have ADHD. On this podcast, I dig into the tools, tactics, and best practices to help you work with your ADHD brain. Today, I'm talking with Ben Ahrens, the CEO and co-founder of ReOrigin, which is a science-based, self-directed neuroplasticity training program. Ben was a former trainer and semi-professional surfer who became bedridden with chronic neurological Lyme disease for over three years. In his search to heal himself, Ben sought out and consulted with top neuroscientists and cutting-edge doctors from all over the world. His successful recovery led him to working with these same neuroscientists to develop the program that became ReOrigin. In my talk with Ben today, we discuss how we can start with just one breath, the power of changing our beliefs, and how important it is to embrace the process. If you'd like to follow along on the show notes page, you can find that at hackingyouradhd.com slash one breath. All right, keep on listening to find out how powerful taking just one breath can be. So what would be great to start with is that story you have about how you got into this whole idea of neuroplasticity and starting with one breath. Yeah, sure. So um, I've always had a sort of fascination with how the human body works and brain works from a really young age, just how things work in general. You know, I was that kid that would take stuff apart and kind of see what was inside. And (laughs) then I got into exercise and stuff like that in in high school and just became deeper in this this idea that you could have, um, you know, certain thoughts in your mind about how you want it to feel or function and that you could actually do certain things to, to change that. And then the experience you just alluded to was um, after college, I was in my mid twenties, I'd been working as a, a personal trainer in Manhattan and had a surf camp in Long Island and doing all sorts of athletic stuff. And um, during that time, I actually lost my health, ended up bed bound for three years with uh, what turned out to be chronic Lyme disease. But um, it ultimately led me down this incredible path of learning what the human brain and body are really capable of. And what led me to the brain was that this is a really common experience for people that are that have gone through a tough condition, not even necessarily a pathogenic issue like I experienced, um, could have been a life event, a trauma or a physical injury. But something that a lot of people experience is that after it's passed, um, that's to say, after the doctors say that they've recovered, they still experience a lot of the same symptoms, if not other symptoms in addition to those. And so there seems to be an issue with like aligning the perception with, with reality. We can go, go kind of deeper in that direction, but I thought, um, is it all right if I share a story that I think would be really relevant to, to this podcast? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as I was going through that experience, I was in a way it was really fortuitous because it prompted me to sort of pop the hood on things that had been going on my entire life, but I just hadn't really been able to discover them. And one example is, um, I went to all different kinds of doctors, but one of the doctors that I saw was an eye doctor, eye specialist, because I was having all these vision problems, blurred vision and um, brain fog and all these weird things. And um, after some simple tests, he said, do you know that you have convergence insufficiency? And I said, well, you know, what the heck is that? And he was like, he held up his finger and he brought it close to my face. And when it got to about a foot away from my face, I just lost track of it. It just blurred and I struggled to keep my eyes focused on it. Um, and he said, 
this is basically like a muscle problem in your eyes that your eyes aren't tracking to a certain point. You know, have you ever experienced that in the past? And I, I remembered in school, I was uh, put in, you know, uh, given tutoring and labeled as like a slow learner and all these kinds of things, which had obviously ripple effects <laughs> later in life. But, um, you know, trying to read in front of the class and just sweating and struggling and being so tense about that. And I remember how what a struggle it felt like just to to keep my eyes on the page. And all of a sudden this connection was was made where I was like, oh my God, maybe. And I asked him, like, if I'm expending all of this energy trying to keep my eyes focused on the page, could that take away cognitive resources from things like comprehension? Basically, could that make it harder for me to, you know, understand or sit still? And it's like, yeah, I'm surprised you could even understand anything with how much effort it would have taken you to keep your eyes on the page. Um, so it was like all of these light bulbs sort of went off. And then my next question was, okay, well, can I fix it? <laughs> and um, he gave me a, a simple series of exercises called pencil push-ups, where you basically stare at a pencil closer and further and closer and further. And eventually you just strengthen up those eye muscles. And I did this and within about two weeks, I didn't have any more trouble keeping my eyes focused on the page. Those cognitive issues related to my eyes were gone and I was able to triple my reading speed. And as a consequence, of course, sort of delete those lifelong beliefs that I was ever a slow learner in the first place. So it's just an interesting, interesting thing. And sometimes when we feel you know, led me to to understand that when we feel uncomfortable or squirmy or like it takes us a lot of effort uh, to to do something, it might be because um, our body is compensating in other ways. There's other things going on, and sometimes it takes that outside person, like this doctor, to point that out to us. But sometimes we can actually get in touch with with ourselves uh, to the point where we can actually figure out, okay, where where is my attention being pulled away from? Um, so anyway, this was just one of, one of many, you know, journeys that, that kind of, I went on to start to piece myself back together and, and become a more functional, <laughs> healthy person later in life. And I can totally see how we have very limited mental resources. So we can only do so much with what we have right in front of us. And when we're distracted over here, it makes it much harder to focus right in front of us. Yeah. So of course, yeah, if you're spending all that energy trying to correct for this vision problem that's going to make everything else harder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it certainly certainly felt that way. So with this, you had just that fairly simple exercise. It is amazing how many things like, oh yeah, if you just did this, you'd be fine. And you're like, but I would have never known had I not had this like, you know, other thing happen that made me go through this. Yeah, exactly. It's like those interesting domino effects in, in life that sometimes the things that, of course, while I was going through that Lyme experience and being bedbound and trying to figure things out, not knowing what was going to happen, it was not a fun experience. It was incredibly challenging, of course, and um, concerning in the sense that like you just, I just felt like I had no control. But in retrospect, it was the greatest gift because it led me to so many other realms of understanding and being able to to make changes and realize that even though we don't often realize it, we do actually have uh, far more control uh, than we give ourselves credit for. It really just comes down to understanding how this, this mechanism that is the brain and body works, and then being able to use simple tools uh, like these exercises and others uh, that can start to um, you know, make real changes. Yeah. 
So what do you think was like your turning point in this recovery then? Well, you know, a few, few years back, I, I gave a, a TED talk and the, the topic of the talk was transformation. And, and mm-hmm. I was asked to basically distill down into one message, my most important thing that I had to teach. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, what my mind went to was this experience I was having when I was in the throes of that condition. And I was feeling the lack of control. And I remember some innate wisdom in my body, perhaps, just prompted me to take this deep breath and give this big sigh. And I remembered how in the moment right after that, my body felt much different, actually, for the first time in maybe years, I felt like I would had kind of let go and relaxed and my muscles started to relax. And I realized that, okay, maybe I can do that one thing again and just take that one deep breath. So that started to become my sort of first domino to practice was just to, to, to do that one thing. And through that, I realized that sure, there's the breath, but there's actually a lot of other ways and other tools that we can use to change our body's internal state and to even through conditioning, which I've gotten into more more recently with studying neuroplasticity, we can actually retrain our brain to be that chief conductor of the orchestra that is the body. The body is such a complex system, but if we reestablish the brain as the chief orchestrator, then a lot of things can become easier downstream. I mean, I love the the idea of the one breath being able to also just like step back, take a breath and like evaluate. It's really valuable for ADHD being because we have the impulsivity side of just doing things and being able to be like, take a breath. And I know people are going to be listening being like, you can't do that. It's impulsivity. And it's not going to happen every time. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the really fascinating things I, I realized when I started to study the brain and uh, neurobiology is that looking at where, where, do, where does our impulsivity come from? A lot of it comes from this region of the brain, which is called the limbic system, which if you look at the brain, uh, I think it's Dr. Dan Siegel has this great thing. Anyone can, can look it up. It's called, he calls it the hand model of the brain, where basically um, if you hold up your hand and you kind of close your thumb into your palm, mm-hmm. and then you wrap your fingers around your thumb, your thumb is like the limbic system. So if you imagine that your wrist is the brain stem, uh, the thumb is basically like the next thing, right? Sits right on top mm-hmm. of the brain stem. And on top of that is the cortex. And most of our impulsivity, our reflexes, our survival instincts, they come from the limbic system. And simply because the limbic system is closer to the brainstem than the cortex, which is our rational thinking, planning part of the brain, the messages get to the brainstem about a half a second quicker. So our job sort of becomes to use and engage that, that cortex to do what Dr. Victor, Victor Frankel said, which is to get in the space between stimulus and response. And this is something that, well, certainly not easy, it is possible. And the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. So this would be like, you know, kind of taking a pause, doing anything you can to take a pause, whether it's snap your fingers, go outside, take a deep breath, whatever it might be, um, to start to recognize when that when those impulses are starting to surface and then break that pattern uh, by taking a pause and ultimately and ideally redirecting our awareness and and activity to something that's more beneficial. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'll do with this podcast is be like, for those things, you know, you're going to be impulsive about, 
give yourself a little bit of resistance to doing them, like physical resistance, make it just a little bit harder to do, you know, put the cookies that you're going to snack in away in the pantry. And then that gives you the physical time so that you can also have the mental space as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think you made a really good point, which is about, you know, doing it in small sort of doses, incremental training, right? It's not about just instantly jumping to the final result. Um, it's much more about the journey and the process it, itself. Um, you know, I'll share something that I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to during the pandemic. I was using my phone a lot. Normally, I, I would like to read in bed, but after a few months, I created this habit of just checking my phone. And obviously, the phone and social media are sort of engineered to be um, addictive and to keep us in the the cycle of scrolling and always looking for what's next. And I was finding that when I did go back to to reading and back to my book, within about just a few minutes, my mind would just get, oh, my attention really wanted to go back to the phone, you know? Mm -hmm. And to your point about doing this in small increments, rather than, you know, force myself to just stay reading for the next 30 minutes or something and have my mind just screaming and going everywhere. um, Instead, I said, okay, if I'm going to, you know, check my phone, at least I'm going to make it a conscious act instead of being pulled in that direction by default, right? So whenever the a great piece of advice I was given years ago about making any sort of change or, or leaning into discomfort is this notion of dancing with discomfort. And the simple rule that I was given was when you start to feel an impulse arise, whether it's to check your phone or do something else, let it surface and be with it and then continue what you're doing. Then let it surface a second time and still continue the thing that you're doing, the, the uncomfortable thing that might be initiating that, you know, that impulse. On the third time, allow yourself to follow the impulse. So I would do that with reading. You know, I'd, I'd get find the, that my mind wanted to go to the phone. And on the, the first time I would take a breath, come back to, to my reading and you know, start reading another few minutes. Second time, um, you know, same thing. Impulse would arise, take a breath, come back to the reading. On the third time it would arise and I would allow myself to go back to the phone and sort of satisfy that impulse. And what you notice when you start to work in this way is that little bit by little bit, those windows of of discomfort start to open. So meaning that the the point at which the discomfort or the impulse appears um, gets pushed back. So you know, what started off is like after three minutes of reading, eventually it could be five and then 10 and 30 and so forth. Um, but this is really, I think, an important thing that it's so much more about the process and about doing things in a way that's sustainable in small steps than it is about thinking that we just have to be a certain way or do a certain thing right now. Although I always see the hardest part with that is initially it's very easy to do the the first step of like, okay, I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. This is I'm going to take that small step. But it's, you know, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, being like, I need to stick with this, but I've my brain somewhere else now. It's not even remembering that I'm supposed to be doing this anymore. Yeah. I, I'm curious. Well, how, how have you found, um, how have you been able to overcome that or, or, or have you? I always use some sort of accountability system is like vital for what I, when I want to implement something. Cause it's like, I know I have the tendency to just try and go on to the next thing. Even if I'm making progress, which is frustrating, I'm like, I can see that I'm making progress. I mean, I know I'm not doing as much as I'd want because I want that instant gratification of just being there. But 
having accountability with either, um, you know, uh, star charts can work great for this sometimes, uh, but also like, yeah, people that I have like accountability team that I talk to. So I can be like, Hey, this is what I'm going to be working on for this amount of time. Check back with me, like at least once a week on it or that kind of thing. Uh, and that, that usually helps, but it's still like, that's not a perfect system either. It's one of those things where I'm like, I definitely need to figure out better ways to make that happen. Yeah. Like, likewise, the, the struggle is real. You know, um, I think that sometimes what, what happens and certainly happens in my own experience is I have, I'll put too many things on, on the plate, too many mm-hmm. things that I'm trying to improve, right? Different categories at the same time. Like, okay, I want to, I want to get better at reading at night and I want to stretch and I want to, you know, work out regularly and I want to you know, all these different mm-hmm. things. And so to your point, like you can start making progress in, in one, but then when I feel like that gets into, into motion, then, you know, you start adding other things and, and everything like that. And, um, I think in my experience, one of the things that's been really helpful is taking a step back and taking a longer term uh, or bigger picture view of it and sort of realizing that the important things will will stick, meaning that the important things will will rear their heads again as like, this is an important thing to address. Because sometimes, you know, our minds want to go everything. There's so many new shiny things out there in this day and age. Um, we just want to follow everything. but um, not everything is for every person and we don't actually have to have to make all these changes. Um, I think actually embarking on that of like even going through periods where we do take on too much or try a lot of different things going in different directions, um, is a useful exercise in a way, because, um, we'll go through a cycle. We'll come back to realizing, okay, like, you know, maybe half of that stuff wasn't really that important. Um, but these few things that keep on coming back up for me, like that are, you know, my, my, my inner, my inner self is kind of telling me these, these things are good for you. Um, those are the things that, that you should uh, attend to. And um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that came up for me is this idea of also making a not to do list, even of things that you think are good to do. Because like, as we were saying in the beginning, we only have so many mental resources to do things, but this applies also over the term, time, like a time frame of a day, of a week, a month. We, we've got a limited amount of time. So if we try to do 20 things, we're not going to get them all done. We know this, but we tried to do it over and over again. But if we go, okay, I know I want to do 20 things. I'm going to choose to do two and I'm going to make a list of those other 18 things that I know I'm going to want to do and just say, I'm not going to do them this month. And then having that like choice to be, I'm not doing those things makes it much easier to be like, well, I can't do those other things. I'm have to focus on this. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great, such a great idea. And just having that clear kind of list laid out. Um, it's one of the things that, that I do with the people I work with is I have them uh, create their own list of things that they can do to reliably elevate their mood and like keep that in front of them because we can all get stuck in email or work or our own heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, sometimes like it, it's not simply enough to, to take that pause. We've already established that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but it is also just the first step taking that pause. The next step would be now, what are you going to replace that 
behavior or that discomfort with that's going to make you feel better. And so I like the idea of like having that clear, you know, I'm seeing like the left side of the page. These are the things I'm not going to do. And then these are the things that I am going to do. And so, yeah, for, for the case of the the people that I work with who are recovering from, from chronic conditions, but also have this common experience where um, there's a, sort of hyper exacerbation in the limbic system that causes the mind to go haywire and just jump from thing to thing to thing. Um, it can be really helpful just to create for yourself this visual list of like, okay, you know, here's the five things that I can, here's the short list menu that I can choose from of things that I know are going to help me to feel better, calm down and ultimately move forward. So great video a little bit back. Uh, for ADHD of creating a dopa menu for yourself of just <laughs> menu of things that will give you dopamine because I love that when you're in that need, it's really hard to think of the things you're going to do too. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's like, you're not, you're, you're really not yourself in a way your limbic system has taken over and um, you're almost by definition, the executive network is kind of shut down or inhibited. Mm-hmm. So you're not in the, in the best place to be planning. But if you front loaded that planning, if you made that list prior, now all you have to do is have it in front of you. And then, you know, you can, you can kind of rest assured knowing that, you know, your best version or your better version of yourself already made this plan with your best interest at heart. All you have to do is choose from it and follow it. The other night, it was funny. I went went on a walk with my wife in the evening and we're like, just going around the block and we feel so much better from just doing a little bit of movement right now. And a little bit was important, but also just like it was easy. And that wasn't our intention with going for the walk, but it was also the, oh yeah, we should remember this because this is easy to do. And it's just made the rest of the night so much nicer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And you know, it's like, I've been giving this a lot of thought lately, actually, because there are certain things that are easy for us to do and that we remember to do um, mm-hmm. because they make us feel good right away. Like we don't have to really remind ourselves to scroll through social media the same way you don't have to remind yourself to eat a piece of chocolate or something. It's it's more of like an impulse. And the reason is is actually pretty interesting. It's because with those types of activities, the reward is synced up to the activity, meaning you get the reward not only when you're doing it, but actually before in anticipation of doing it. Whereas when it comes to growth or doing something new, doing something differently, at first, the reason that it's so hard to to do these things and to remember to do them is because the good feeling, the reward feeling comes afterward. Uh, so like, you know, movement, going for a walk, exercise, these are great. But in the beginning, when you're getting started, um, it doesn't really activate the mesolimbic reward system until like 20 or 30 minutes into it. Then afterwards, you get this good mm-hmm. feeling. And our work is, is about kind of realigning that perception to the point where um, if you were to do that on a really regular basis, eventually it would get to the point where you do anticipate the good feeling because you've You've, um, they say neurons that fire together, wire together. So you've created this neurological association between all of those beneficial feelings, the dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, everything that comes from the, the movement, um, and doing the activity itself. So wouldn't you say in, uh, our work, you're f- referring to reorigin, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess in, in that case, I meant our work as more generally speaking, like our work as humans oh, <laughs> is, yeah. to, is mm-hmm. to just do these things consistently, kind of accept the fact that in the beginning, 
we're not going to have that we're going to, we might need extrinsic motivation or that's to say, you know, uh, something that comes from outside of ourselves, but eventually when we stay consistent with these things, they do become intrinsically motivated. Yeah. Well, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what you do at Reorigin then? Yeah, sure. So Reorigin is a neuroplasticity based company and program. It's essentially a brain training program, Mm -hmm. uh, with a community and that offers coaching for people who are struggling with anything from anxiety to depression, including ADD. Um, but also conditions that are, that seem to be or are in fact more physical by nature, like the one I experienced, like Lyme disease or even long COVID. Um, or a lot of these types of conditions like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, again, that often stemmed from an initial triggering event, but never quite went away. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people that come through origin have felt like maybe they got a cold years ago and they never quite got fully better. Or every time they experience a certain amount of life stress, all of those cold or flu-like symptoms come back or that pain from that old injury comes back. And there's no clear... Uh, explanation in the conventional medical literature as to why. Now, there's actually a ton of uh, research that's that's been coming out over the years um, that shows how the brain can actually learn uh, to continue to process pain when there's no real world uh, or you know reason for it anymore. So, what Reorigin is is it's a, a process and really a methodology that guides people step by step how to retrain the brain particularly the limbic system, to tune down the stress response, find that sense of calm in their body, and ultimately optimize the body for self-healing. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like just so much with like trauma work and stuff. Just it's you had a uh response to help you at the time and it's become maladaptive. Uh yeah, exactly, exactly right. And yeah, I think a lot of time uh trauma is becoming more um, in the eye of the mainstream. I think when a lot of people think of trauma, they think of emotional trauma. Um, but trauma can happen on a lot of different levels, you know, physical trauma. Um, there was an interesting article that came out a few months ago in Scientific American. The title was The Brain Has a Special Kind of Memory for Past Infections. And it's all about something that's uh, actually been known since the 1960s is called conditioned immune suppression. And it's how if you've experienced like a, this is now like a pathogenic trauma, like, you know, we're seeing this a lot with, with COVID um, people who are, uh, who, who get, uh, you know, COVID a certain subset of that population uh, can actually retain a sort of trace memory of that in the brain and the nervous system. And this article was kind of getting into like how that, how that works and how the brain controls the peripheral immune system. Um, and when you start to, to learn this stuff, it's actually, I think a lot of people could find it really hopeful in the sense that um, we now have a better understanding of the mechanisms at play. And not only do we have the understanding, but we have some pretty simple tools that we can use to change our own bodily responses and to regain control, even to some extent, over the immune system. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, exciting time. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate to that. I got covid last june and i'm like yeah i have not been the same since i don't have like the full spectrum of long covid symptoms so i'm like i was like at one point like yeah i'm better and then i'm like yeah but i'm also not where i was (laughs) yeah and i think a lot of people can can relate and that's why it's so challenging to diagnose these types of conditions 
Um, and it's challenging for, for them, for conventional medicine to, to treat them because they're, there's no clear cut cause that they can see, because again, the cause is not necessarily physical anymore. It maybe mm-hmm. was, or was initiated by a physical cause like pathogen at one time, but it's now been learned and ingrained in the brain and the nervous system. And so as a, as a condition, it needs to be, um, kind of repatterned and reestablished as, as, uh, one that can bring the body back into homeostasis. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And it makes so much sense because it's like more I learn about brain and things like mindset and placebo. I'm like, your brain has so much control over yourself that it's, it's amazing. Just to think like, oh, I, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, I'm glad to see more and more, you know, um, literature is coming out and people understanding about the mind body connection that even to think about it, like the mind body connection is almost not entirely the best way to think about it, right? Because it implies that there are these two separate things, yeah. the mind and the body. And in reality, they're very, very closely um, intertwined, really in, inseparable um, that, uh, yeah, we can, we can see immediately how our mind has, has uh, impacts on our body and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest way to visualize that would be getting a concussion. You are getting physical trauma to your body that is a hundred percent affecting your mind. It's not, there's no separation there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good to see more and more people becoming aware of this. And the, I think the more, you know, research comes out, uh, the more people are talking about it, the less it seems like some kind of a woo woo thing and mind body connection. And the more it's just like, mm-hmm. Oh, Oh yeah, this is actually just second nature. Of course the, the mind affects the body and vice versa. And we can, experiment with this and test this in any which way, you know, anyone can visualize their favorite food in front of them. And within a few seconds, they'll be salivating. So that salivary response is a very real physical response to an imagined stimulus. Um, You know, conversely, someone can make a change to their body through their posture or their breath, and they can start to feel their mind and mood change. Um, So it really is this incredible two-way street And, um, you know, when we talk about beginning to intervene in the mind and body and and change these systems with respect to whether it's feeling symptoms of like a a past virus or something, um, there are so many ways now and so many tools that we can use to actually change our mental and physical behavior. And when I talk about behavior here, I'm not saying like necessarily our our actions or things that we do like a morning routine. I mean, even our subtle bodily behavior, like um, holding muscle tension subconsciously, that if we start to bring our conscious mind to that and become aware of it, then we can actually start to change it in the same way that the breath is this uh, inroad to the autonomic nervous system, because it's both consciously under our control and it happens automatically. Mm -hmm. So it's happening automatically. Maybe we could find that we're breathing too shallow, but once we become aware of it, now we can consciously change it. And that change has massive ripple effects throughout the system. You one, uh, the funny meme I see for ADHD people is just like, Hey, this is just a reminder to unclench your jaw. And I'm like, why, why was I doing that? That has got to have just so many ripple effects in my body that I'm like holding that tension. Yeah, totally. And, you know, now they're, they're finding a, a study came out uh, recently showing the difference between reading, just reading on a smartphone versus mm-hmm. reading on a, a book tablet. They were reading the same text just in, in these different formats. Uh, and they found that the 
smartphone had a higher activation of the sympathetic response. So increased muscle tension, uh, decreased breath rate, uh, breathing more shallow, whereas the people reading the same exact thing on paper uh, were more in the parasympathetic state, deeper, re- more relaxed breath, relaxed body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's not hard to, uh, to, to think as to why, um, you know, in some reasons that were given, uh, obviously, in the most immediate sense, the the phone with its lights and everything is is visually stimulating. But I actually think that it's because we've created a neurological association between the phone and this notion that there's infinite amount of information in in that. And so in the uh, Yale happiness course, they actually talked about it in this way. The reason that it's so hard to pay attention to someone when you're, let's say, out to dinner with someone and you have your phone on your table even if the phone is face down, because imagine for a moment that your mind in the back of your mind, you know that there's this wheelbarrow next to you of an, like an infinite amount of books, every book, every movie, every clip, every meme, everything ever created is accessible through that thing that's right there. So even if you're not looking at it being visually stimulated, just knowing that all of these options are there. And that the mind just is this thing that wants to curate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that alone can be sufficient distraction to to keep us from being present uh, with the person that that we're with. I totally see that, and it's yeah, just another one of those things. It's something pulling on our mind while we're sitting there trying to focus on something else. Yeah, oh. yeah, and so for that, like obviously, you know, there are the the ways we can we can work on it of like working on ourselves to not be so distracted by it but then there's also the environment you know and and how we can you know turn the phone off at night or or um you know optimize our environment in such a way where we don't have those pulls so strongly on us in the first place it is a balancing act it's going to take us a long time to get this right whatever that even means um but i think it's the important thing is to just become aware of these realities and that gives us the freedom to to navigate, uh, you know, through this environment in a in a better way for us. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming in kind of up on time here. So, where can uh, people find out more about uh, all of this and what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, they can follow me on social media at reorigin underscore official, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to be dropping a lot more just tips and tricks and sharing thoughts and things like this. They can also go to reorigin.com and that's spelled out re-origin.com. And there they can learn about the neuroplasticity program and the coaching and how they can apply some real science-based techniques to reclaim their brain and ultimately regain their health. Well, I'll definitely be checking it out myself too. Definitely something I was like, yeah, that could, that could help. Is there anything you want to leave with? I think if, if I could just say one one last thing, it would just be to let people know that um, while this road of, of growth and discovery is not necessarily an easy one, um, there are so many things that we can do to regain some measure of control of ourselves. I know, especially in this day and age, it's so easy to feel out of control, you know, still on a daily basis at some point in the day, I'll find myself there. But having some some relatively simple tools, um, it's, it's entirely possible to bring yourself back into a state of harmony, of focus, and ability to to direct your your mind and your actions where you want them to go. So I just want to you know leave everyone with that encouraging note that this is totally doable. 
hundreds of people have done this with reorigin. Anyone can do it. And it doesn't take a special kind of person. It just takes a willingness to try. Awesome. Yeah. Most important step is the next one. Exactly. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think uh, people will get a lot out of this. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Ben for that great conversation. And thank you for sticking with us all the way to the end. If you want to check out ReOrigin, you can find them at re-origin.com or just look for the link on the show notes page. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can leave me a message over at hackingyouradhd.com slash contact. You can also reach me on Twitter at hackingyouradhd. And I've also just launched a TikTok channel that you can find by searching for Hacking Your ADHD. If you'd like links or to read this episode's transcript, you can find those on the show notes page at hackingyouradhd.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way is to share episodes with someone you think would get something out of it. Just click the share button on your podcast player and send your bestie the link with something like, hey, I love this episode of Hacking Your ADHD. I'd bet you'd get a lot out of it too. Or you can support the show through my Patreon at hackingyouradhd.com slash Patreon. Sign up for the 2, 5, 10, 25, or even $50 a month level and get some great perks like monthly bonus content or early access to upcoming episodes. That's hackingyouradhd.com slash Patreon. And be sure to check out all the other podcasts on the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. For interviews with fellow ADHDers and ADHD experts, check out Eric Tiver's show, ADHD Rewired. For those of you with kids, be sure to check out Brendan Mahan's show, ADHD Essentials. And even if you don't have kids, his show is still a great resource for ADHD management. If you're interested in exploring issues of race and diversity in ADHD, be sure to check out ADHD Diversified with MJ. For those of you late-diagnosed women, moms, and professionals, you can also check out the ADHD-friendly lifestyle with Moira Maven. I also do a live Q&A with all the hosts of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network on the second Tuesday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. If you'd like to sign up, just go to ADHDrewired.com slash events. And now for your moment of dad. I'm currently reading a book about anti-gravity. It's impossible to put down. 